Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 26. It's been quite a while since we were in the Psalms. Uh, For a good while we were doing uh, every first Sunday we went through the Psalms in order. And we took a little bit of a break with uh, a few sermons on the sacraments and Easter and probably something around Christmas time. Uh, But we're going to get back into the Psalms, pick up where we left off in Psalm 26. If you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to Psalm 26, if you don't have one, it's printed inside the bulletin there on the right side. And I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word today. Psalm 26, give ear to the reading of God's word. A psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, uh, as we do every Sunday, that you've given us your word as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that we might know you rightly, know your will for our lives, that we might retune our hearts, uh, as, as uh, Spurgeon wrote of the Psalms. And we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, that we might look on Christ and be growing in the grace and faith in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, here in this psalm, as is the case in many of the psalms, uh, I think David says a, a number of things that might make us a little uncomfortable. Some of the psalms, we, we read them, we get them. You know, psalm 103, I, I never get tired of hearing that psalm or reading that psalm. Uh, but sometimes they say things that we can't, when we first read them, we say, oh, I, could I say that? Is that something I should, would actually say on my own? Things like, you know, we've read before in Psalm 119, you know, oh, Lord, how I love your law. We should say that. A Christian, someone who's been redeemed by Christ, our reaction to God's law should be, it's God's law. It's our God's law. We love it. It's not an enemy to the Christian. It's not a burden on our back. As Dan mentioned this morning when he read the Ten Commandments and read from the larger catechism, uh, things like, I hate the wicked. You know, whoa, that sounds awfully judgmental, doesn't it? Well, the psalmist puts those words in our mouths at times and does it even here in Psalm 26. Uh, King David here says uh, in this uh, psalm some things that make us uncomfortable a little bit possibly. Sometimes it's good for the word of God to make us uncomfortable. You know, oftentimes, I've heard this stated a number of times, and I think it's a little overstated, 
But um, sometimes it's been said that a preacher's job is to make the comfortable or to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And I think there's some truth in that, but I won't, won't go quite as far as to say that's the, the job of a preacher. Um, but again, the Psalms put the words of faith in our, mind, in our mouths and they teach us really how, to, how we are to think, how we're to feel, how we're to speak, how we're to live, and even how we're to pray. The Psalms in a lot of ways, like this one, it's not just a song, but it's a prayer. Well, verse 1, what does David say there? He says, vindicate me, O Lord. And the word vindicate, if you have a, a different translation, yours might say, judge me, O Lord. The word is really judge uh, there. It's really, he's really saying, judge me, O Lord. Now, we think of the word judging, especially when it comes to the Bible, as having a negative connotation, don't we? What do we say? Judge not. You know, what does what uh, Matthew 7 1 say? Judge not, lest you be judged. There's a negative connotation there. Here, it's, you know, when you go to a judge, if you're innocent, if things go the way they're supposed to go, him judging you or the jury judging you isn't, isn't a bad thing. If they judge justly, if they judge rightly, if you're innocent they, and they judge you truthfully, you're not afraid to be judged. You're like, yeah, judge my case. Let's go to court. I know I'm right. This is what David is saying here. Judge me, O Lord. Vindicate me is the sense there. Um, you know, who would ever think to pray and ask God that? Judge me, O God. You have to have a pretty clear conscience to do that. And I think oftentimes we, we don't have a clear conscience, and so we would never think to say something like that. Well, not only that, but what else does David say here in, in our text? He doesn't just uh, plead his case before the Lord, which he does, um, but how, what does he base it on, in, 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 at least in some, to some degree? When he says, judge me, O Lord, for what, is, what does it say? Judge me, vindicate me, O Lord, why? For I have walked in my integrity. He's basing this request uh, for vindication and judgment on his own conduct, uh, you know, at least in part. And that, that makes us as evangelicals very uncomfortable, with, with good reason in some, in some sense, I think. We, you know, we don't want to think that we're uh, having a, a works religion. We don't want to think that we're approaching the Lord based on what we do, because we don't. This table is a reminder, among other things, that we do not approach the Lord in our own righteousness. That would be a fool's errand. We have, on our own, we have no righteousness with which to approach a holy, a holy God. But David says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And then he goes even further. It's, like, it's, it's almost like if we were there when he was writing it, we'd be like, stop. You know, you're digging a hole, David. You're digging this hole way deep and you're taking us with you. What does he say there in verse 3? He doesn't just say, vindicate me, for I have walked in my integrity. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. For my, uh, test my heart and my mind. He's like, don't just take my word for it, you know. Dig deep. You know, take a look, not just at my outward actions. Test my heart and my mind. Or technically, it's a strange phrase. It's like, test my kidneys. I don't know what that really means. Don't ask me. But that's why a lot of the translations will say they're mi your mind, your heart and your mind. Like, look at my motives. If there's anything that, I don't know about you, that I'm less comfortable with having examined, it's my motives. My outward actions are often fine. So are yours. But our motives, not so much. Our motives are very often mixed at best uh, with the best of our, of our works. But David says, prove me, you know, prove me, put me to the test. Prove me and try me, test uh, my heart and mind. One of those words has the idea of, of, um, 
a refining fire, you know, put me to the test, you know, put me under the fire and see what's dross and what's gold. I don't pray for that. Try me. You know, it's one thing for Isaiah to say, here I am, send me. David says, try me. Put me to the test. That's, that's, uh, that's some scary words to pray to the Lord, uh, to ask him. You know, the old thing about don't pray for patience. Uh, you know, if you do, God's going to send trials your way. Well, David says, try me. Give me, give me your, not give me your best shot, but something along those lines. Take a real good look, real hard look at my heart and my mind. Well, I, I don't know about you, that's not very high on my prayer list. You know, when somebody says, hey, uh, Andy, how can I pray for you? I'm always, hey, great. Uh, ask God to <laughs> test me, try me, improve me, you know. Ask God to take a real close look at me and, and see how I'm, how I'm really doing. Um, well, at times, maybe we should. You know, and this isn't the only psalm where it says that, is it? You know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Uh, try me and know my anxious thoughts. See, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. Part of me is like, every time I sing that, there's a song that has that, those, those words to it from the Psalms. I almost don't want to sing the words. <laughs> you know, see if there be any wicked way in me. Of course there's wicked ways in me. You know, it's like, hey, there might be. You know, hey, God, God knows the wicked ways that are in our hearts and in our lives. But, uh, but the scriptures put those words in our mouths and they do it for a reason. Even King David had to put those words uh, in, his, in his mouth. Well, well, David is here pleading his case before his God, before the Lord, asking God to clear his name in some way. Now, we don't know, as is often the case with the Psalms, we don't know what David's situation was. The only thing that's in the subheading is what? Of David. We know who wrote it. We don't know as... Sometimes David's very specific. David wrote this psalm when he was on the run from his son you know, Absalom or when he was on the run from Saul or, or uh, some such things. Um, but this one, we don't have any idea. We don't know who his enemies were. We don't know what the circumstances were that have brought this to his, to his mind. We don't know if he was accused of a particular thing, of a particular shortcoming or, or sin. You know, some have suggested that this psalm was written while David was still on the run from King Saul. Uh, from, on the run from King Saul. Uh, either way, it's likely that David was suffering in some way. He was suffering affliction and possibly persecution in some way. And, and what happens as a Christian when you're suffering? What happens when, uh, you know, as Rob, Rob mentioned, you know, sometimes things are going your way, you know, zippity doo sometimes they're not. Sometimes some really bad things come into the lives of, of Christians. And, and the enemies of the cross of Christ, what do they do when that happens? Aha, you know, I knew it. You must have done something to bring this on yourself. That's, that's, it's even the way Job's friends were, wasn't it? Even his wife, you know, do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die, you know. Some, some friends, but his, you know, his friends are like, you must have done something, you know, give glory to God. Tell us, you know, you had to have done something. When things are going well, what do we often say or think? Must be living right, must be doing something right. And when things aren't going well, we, we ourselves often think, you know, oh, did I do something? I, I must be doing something wrong. Well, our, our enemies at times uh, use that as ammunition. Uh, you know, when trials come our way, our enemies shake their heads, shake their fingers at us and say, ah, you know, serving the Lord, yeah, well, yeah what, what a bunch of hogwash that must be. Or, or your profession of faith, your life as a Christian must have something uh, lacking uh, in it. You must have done something to deserve that. Well, um, you know, when this happens, this psalm, I think, shows us the way back to a quiet conscience. 
this, this psalm uh, and others show us the way back to a quiet and peaceful conscience. Ultimately, our, vind- our vindication has to come from where? Verse 1, from the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord. David, you know, David, we don't know who his enemies were. We don't know what the situation was again, uh, which probably helps us to identify with it more than it would if we really knew sometimes because he was a king and we're not. You know, we, we can't put ourselves in his shoes under his crown, so to speak. Um, but David, you know, David as the king or as the rightful king, he could have fought his own case. He could have, could have pled, pled his own case before the people. And what does he do? He says, God, only the Lord can truly vindicate me, vindicate me, judge me. Oh, Lord. Well, I will look at three things this morning. And the first of these three things that, that David draws our attention to, uh, the first one is David's conduct. The fact that he walked in his integrity. Uh, Verse 1 again. Vindicate me or judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Uh, You know, is is David somehow claiming to be inherently righteous? Is David claiming perfection? Is he he saying, I've arrived, you know, uh, I finally reached sinless perfection. Was he uh, of that that kind of of a mindset? Um, and was he, was he claiming to be inherently righteous before the eyes of a holy and all-seeing God? No. David, David wasn't suicidal. He wasn't crazy. He didn't, he didn't think for a minute to say, I'm perfect, so God, check me out. You won't find a speck. This is the same man that we know uh, sinned in, in many ways. He sinned uh, of adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband Uriah killed uh, to try to cover it up. Well, you can cover it up in front of the eyes of people, but you can't cover any sin up in the eyes of an all-seeing God. You know, is, is David teaching us to pray hypocritically here? Is he putting hypocritical words in our mouths? Is he, is he teaching us to pray like that Pharisee in Luke chapter 18? You might know the, the parable that, that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. I'll read it. It's rather short. He says, Jesus says, uh, he, al- or he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus was aiming this one uh, at, at a particular crowd, the self-righteous crowd, and treated others with contempt. So people that thought they were very righteous and treated other people as beneath them, Jesus had a parable for them too. And he says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray. You know, there's two kinds of people in this world. It's one of those stories. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. Now, we who have read the Bible a thousand times and things, your first thought when I say Pharisee, if I was to do what's the word association game, you'd say bad guy. Well, to his hearers, that wasn't the case, was it? To his hearers, it was, that's the good guy. That's the righteous guy. That's the, that's the pastor, you know, so to speak. You know, the religious professional, the really holy person, right? You all think I'm very holy, right? I mean, pastor. Yeah. Oh, there's laughter. Uh-oh. Um, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this thus, standing by himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be what? God, be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So is David teaching us to exalt ourselves in our prayers? Is that what he's, is that what he's doing here in Psalm 26? No, David isn't, isn't praying that way at all. You know, David is not saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. You know, it's, it can, but it can sound like it if you're not careful, can't it? Yeah, I've walked in my integrity. You know, it's, that's not what David's saying at all. If you read the rest of the psalm, which we will do, which we've already read, I think we'll see that that's not what David is doing at all here. He's not tooting his own horn. Um, you know, this is not the prayer or psalm of a self-righteous man, even if we might take it that way wrongly. Uh, David did not boast of himself. Who did David boast of in this psalm? David doesn't boast of himself in the psalm. He's not saying, ah, look at me, I've walked in my integrity, look how good I am. What does he say in verses 6 to 7? I wash my hands in innocence. I haven't done whatever it is people are saying I've done. And go around your altar, O Lord. What's the altar? The place of sacrifice. What does it imply? Sin. Just like the gospel implies that we have a sin problem. We need a savior. The fact that we need a savior means that we are sinners. And what else does it say there in verse 7? Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Who is David boasting about in this psalm? And who is he telling God that he's going to go to the temple and boast about? Not himself. David's not going around the temple saying, dig me. I'm the king. I'm a good guy. It's good to be the king. You know. He's saying, God has done wonderful things for me. I'm, I, I, the king, am a sinner in need of God's Mercy. So David's not claiming moral perfection here. He's saying that he has truly and sincerely trusted in the Lord, in his steadfast love and faithfulness to him. And because of that, he sincerely, though certainly not perfectly, loved and followed his Lord and also loved and congregated with the Lord's people. There's a lot of talk about the temple here in this, in this uh, psalm. You know, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the old hymn puts it, you know, it's another way of saying we are to trust and obey. We're not saved by our obedience, but we are to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and obey his will, his commands for our lives. And, and now David begins and ends the psalm. He kind of bookends it, speaking of walking in his integrity, verses 1 and 11. And, the, and as he does that, we who believe in Jesus Christ also must learn to walk in our integrity as well. To put it in New Testament terms, which I think we can do. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, so I'll use Ephesians as an example. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul tells us, uh, after telling us all about the gospel in the first three chapters and what God has done for our salvation, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We're to walk in a manner that's fitting, not worthy as, as far as earning it, worthy as far as it, it's matching, it fits it, it goes along with it. Our lives should be consistent with the gospel of Christ. That's what he's saying there. And that's no different than what, what David says in Psalm 26 about himself. All through the scripture we are called to live out our faith and to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. That's, that's in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2. And the apostle Peter quotes it verbatim in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. There's not some big difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's people are always redeemed by grace through faith in the Messiah, and they are all to be holy as God is holy in response, out of gratitude for God's grace in, in Christ his Son. The scriptures call all of us who believe in Jesus Christ our Lord not only to be holy and blameless before God, Ephesians 1.4. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him in love, before God, to be justified. But they also tell us to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2 verse 15. We are to live in a blameless way before our neighbors. Not perfect, not arrogant, not self-righteous, but blameless. When the Bible tells us to look, for example, to think about the church in particular, when we're to look for elders and deacons, the officers that God has blessed the church with for our leadership and for our benefit, what kind of people are we to look for? We are to look for, among other things, the qualifications are, 1 Timothy 3.1, that the elders should be above reproach. Same thing, same idea. Not perfect, not sinless, not self-righteous, above reproach. And the deacon, likewise, in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 3, is to be blameless. Same idea. Now, he's not saying, Paul's not saying, go find Superman, good luck. Right? Elders aren't Superman. Deacons aren't Superman. They may seem like it sometimes from all the work that they do and the things that they endure. But... He also tells him that, you know, you're supposed to set up elders, plural, in the church. And deacons, Lord willing, in the church. Well, if you're supposed to look for Superman, now you're supposed to find multiple Supermans, right? Or Superman. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that your, their lives are supposed to match their profession of faith. Um, so it's not some impossible standard. If you're an elder candidate, uh, you know, even though you know the sins of your heart, if your life matches your profession of faith, and there's no, no one that can call uh, a legitimate accusation against you of, of being a hypocrite. Um, that's, that's the qualification. That's part of the qualification for being that way. So as believers, we too, not just David, must walk in our integrity. And we must make it our aim to grow in the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Well, the second thing, this one might not jump off the page, but he spends a lot of time on it. Not just David's conduct, David's companions. There's something we don't... We're so individualistic. We don't think along these terms. Uh, but David, David does. You know the old saying, <clears throat> there's an old saying that you are known by the company you keep. Uh, you might know it. What does that mean? It means you can tell a lot about a person by the people they hang out with. You can tell a lot about a person by, by the person's friends who they spend their time with. There's so many of these old uh, mom sayings that you uh, can probably think of. You know, uh, birds of a feather do what? Flock together. You know, people that are the same, they hang out with people that are the same. So if you're hanging out with the wicked, there's a good chance that there's a reason for that, for that kind of a, of a thing. Look what David says in verses 4 to 5. He tells us who he does hang out with in the psalm and also who he does not associate with as far as his companions. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort I don't use that word very often. Nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, when David says he will not sit with men of falsehood, or he, or he does not sit with men of falsehood, uh, what's he saying there? What he's mean? He's he's talking. It, the the picture of sitting is an idea of settling into something, of of becoming uh, set in with someone's ways. So, to sit with someone. Uh, a man of falsehood is to so closely associate with them uh, as to not just associate with their with their persons, but also with their views, their habits, and their conduct. 
That's what he's saying. He's not saying you avoid all those bad people out there. He's saying he doesn't, he doesn't associate with them in that way. He doesn't sit with them. He doesn't settle in with their ways of thinking and speaking and living. In Psalm 1, it uses the same kind of imagery, doesn't it? The very first Psalm, verse 1 of Psalm 1, David says, Blessed is the man. What's the, what's the, the, uh, the way to be blessed there? Blessed is the man who what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor what? Sits in the seat of the scoffers. You see, it's like a, there's a downward progression. He, just, he walks, and then he stands, he comes to a stop, and then what does he do? Finally, he sits down. It's like, first he's maybe going the right way, and he veers off, and he's walking in the counsel of the wicked, and then he's standing in the way of sinners, and he's sitting in the seat of the scoffers. That's the, a picture of the, of the uh, deceitfulness of sin, of the influences of, of, of the wicked on, on a person's heart and life. And that, this, the verse here in our text, you know, it, um, David is basically uh, protesting um, to the Lord that he, did no, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't even sit with such people. Whatever the accusation must have, must have been. Um, so what's David saying? He's not just saying, you know, we talk about guilty by association. He's not just saying that. He's not just saying, hey, I'm not sitting with these people. Don't lump me in with them per se. He's saying, I haven't been corrupted by them. I'm not, I'm not the same as them. I'm not under the same influence as, as them. And we'd be wise to take heed to Paul's words, who says something similar. You've probably heard this from your parents back in the day. 1 Corinthians 15:33. Paul says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Bad company does what? Ruins good morals. Be careful who you hang out with. So kids, there's my kids and others here, you know, children, listen to your moms. What do your moms always tell you? What do our mothers always tell us? They say, choose your friends what? Wisely. Choose your friends wisely. Be careful who your friends are. It doesn't mean be snobby. It means be friends with godly people. Spend your time with godly young people. People, boys and girls, young men and young women. Um, Proverbs 13:20 it says, "Whoever walks with the wise becomes what? Wise. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will what? Suffer harm. Choose your friends wisely. So David didn't sit with men of falsehood. Now what does that mean? Is he just talking about liars? Possibly the, the idea of falsehood in the Old Testament, the word that's used here, is often used with reference to idolatry, false gods, that kind of a thing, vanity. It's the, it's the same kind of word that means vanity or falsehood. Um, so he, he might be saying, I don't associate with people, I don't sit with people who, offer, who worship false gods, who worship idols. And then what does he say there? He says, he doesn't, verse 4, consort with what? Hypocrites. So he might be saying, I don't spend my time with people who worship false gods and idols, and I also don't waste my time, don't spend my time with those who claim to worship the one true and living God, but really don't. So he's he's being very particular here with what he's saying. He loved people who loved the Lord. To those whose religion was an empty show, whose conduct contradicted their professions of faith, he stayed away from. He did not throw his lot in with him. What's a hypocrite? Don't what, everybody raise your hand. I, I, me, you look in the mirror if you want to see a hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? What is 
was David being a hypocrite in the psalm? Is he teaching us to, how to be a hypocrite by, by you know, agreeing with what he's saying here? Again, remember, he, this is a guy who at one point in his life, either before or after this psalm, committed adultery with another man's wife, Bathsheba. He had that man killed in order to cover it up, Second Samuel chapter 11. Are you and I hypocrites? How do you know if you're a hypocrite? You know, some people outside of the, of the faith would say if you're a Christian, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But how do you know if you're a hypocrite? After all, again, you know, what, what, are, what do a lot of unbelievers use as an, as an excuse to not come to church? Well, it's so full of hypocrites. And what's the old rejoinder you say back? Well, come on in. There's always room for one more. You know, and that's, that's very much... Very much true. Well, that's, a, that's an excuse, isn't it? It's very much uh, oftentimes just an excuse for avoiding uh, the gospel and the word of God. Um, but a hypocrite is one whose actual way of, of living runs contrary to what you or I profess to believe. That's what a hypocrite is. Are you a hypocrite as a Christian if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation? Are you a hypocrite if you sin? I sure hope not, because that's all of us. Does the Bible anywhere teach that Christians in this life will never sin? No. In fact, 1 John says just the opposite, doesn't it? If we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves. And the truth is what? Not in us. You know, but if we confess our sins, he assumes that we're going to sin. The Lord's Prayer assumes that we're going to sin. Forgive us you know, our, tra- our debts as we forgive our debtors. He doesn't say, you know, just in case you might happen to have a debt. It, it's, it's the pattern prayer. We're going to need to pray it over and over again. Give us our daily bread this day. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our, our debtors, those who have debts against us. So a Christian who sins is not a hypocrite. We all sin. The Bible doesn't ever say that we're not going to sin. The mere presence of sin does not a hypocrite make. What makes a hypocrite? Profession of faith in Christ, profession of calling him Lord, Lord, and not doing what he says. A settled habit of sin. That's hypocrisy. That's the kind of sham faith that James talks about when he says faith without works is what? Dead. You're either following the Lord or you're not. It's not a matter of being perfect of never, of, or never sinning. As the old Steve Taylor song says, double lives take half as long. You know, it's, it's a double life. The word hypocrite was, it, it was a reference to the old masks they used to put on uh, in, their, in their plays back in, the, back in the day. Our companions must rather be in the habitation of the, of the Lord's house, uh, the place where his glory dwells. Notice he, he talks about who his companions in a sense are implicitly and who they're also not. But what does he say there in, in the text? Verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Where did David love to be? With the Lord's people, in the temple, around the altar, you know, proclaiming God's wondrous deeds, God's goodness to him in Christ. And it, it's, I, I basically missed this myself when I was getting ready for the sermon. Who else is David's companion that we kind of skip by, but it's right there in front of our face? Whose house was he in? I love the, oh Lord, Yahweh, I love the habitation of, whose house? Whose habitation is it? 
God's. David's, David's most prized companion was the Lord. The Lord himself and the Lord's people. David wasn't a lone ranger. David wasn't, you know, me, myself, I, and Jesus. It was the Lord and the Lord's people were the people he delighted to be around, not hypocrites and men of, of falsehood. You know, and I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, uh, this is preaching to the choir, I, I hope, in some ways. Um, but, you know, a lot of times people that, uh, even professing Christians that want to avoid the church, at some point there becomes clear, it, it's clear that there's a reason for it. When you avoid the Lord and his house, not, not the building, the, the Lord's people, on the Lord's day, on a regular basis, and, and you'd rather be anywhere but there, that's a bad sign. If you don't love the habitation of the Lord's house, if you'd rather sit, as David says, uh, with, with, with those who are, who are wicked, um, there, it's, it's a very bad a very bad sign. Who you spend your time with, in a sense, I think it's true, according to the psalm, in this life, also, I think, shows who you're going to spend time with in eternity. And if it's not the Lord's people in this life, it, it, I think we're fooling ourselves to think it's going to be the Lord's people in, in eternity. Well, lastly, what, what is David's confidence? What, did Dave, what, what gave David confidence enough to say those things he said in those first few verses that we kind of shudder to put them in our mouths? Test me, try me, prove me, Lord. You know, take a good hard look and tell me what you find. How did David get such confidence that he could say such a thing? What gave David such hope? What did he trust in to make him right with a holy God? Was it his own goodness? Did David really say, you know, was he really thinking, I'm such a good guy, God's going to have to accept me. You know, everybody knows I'm a good guy. I don't know who these people are that are, I'm the king, right? Um, was it his own track record? Look at what he says in verse 3, lest we be put too much weight on him emphasizing his own track record. Verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. His covenant love, it's the word kesed. Your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Or uh, your translation might say, I walk in your truth. I actually prefer that rendering of that verse. But what's before his eyes? His own track record? Did David say, my goodness is always before my eyes. I know I'm a pretty good guy. Come on, you all know I'm a pretty good guy. God knows I'm a pretty good guy. No, your steadfast love is before <laughs> my eyes. What did David, when you say something's before your eyes, it's, it's not physically, you know, what was David focused on? His goodness? No, God's goodness. God's covenant love. His steadfast love was before David's eyes. When David was suffering, when David was being accused of whatever it might have been, what did David turn to? The steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ and the Messiah. And that's why he walked in God's truth, not the other way around. He didn't say, my, my walking in your truth is ever before my eyes. What he trusted in and relied upon for his right standing before a holy God was the steadfast love of the Lord. That is what he thought about. That's what David remembered and meditated upon. And that's what he, I think, here is calling us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to think about, to remember, and to meditate upon. That's what motivated David to walk in the truth of the Lord. That's what's to motivate you and I to walk in the truth of the Lord. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that will make you want to walk in the truth of the Lord. And you can never reverse that. You can never say, I'm going to walk in the truth of the Lord and I'm going to earn his steadfast love. 
It's got to be the other way around. Only the love of God, the steadfast love of him in Christ will make us want to walk in his truth. Verse 11, David also writes, but as for me, he repeats that phrase again, I will walk in my integrity. So he says, verse 1, I have walked in my integrity. Verse 11, I'm going to keep walking in my integrity. No matter what things happen around me, no matter what accusations are thrown my way unjustly, no matter how much affliction I'm going through, maybe even because of walking in his integrity. Remember Job, why did Job suffer? God basically said to Satan, you know, have you considered my servant Job there? He says it more than once. I'm paraphrasing here. You won't find anybody on this earth like him that serves me with his whole heart, that always does what I want him to do. He suffered because he served the Lord. And that's, that's the case many times in this life and in the examples we find in, in God's word and the scriptures. Suffering does not mean you're doing something wrong. It means God is disciplining those he loves and disciplines everyone he accepts as a son. David says in verse 11, As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and what? Be gracious to me. He's not being self-righteous here. He's saying, I'm following the Lord because the Lord loves me. Redeem me. You know, deliver me and be gracious to me. So he's not trusting in his walking in integrity at all. David is not here promoting a religion of works. He says, redeem me. Only a sinner says, redeem me and be gracious to me. David knew full well that he was a sinner. At the end of the day, David's words here in Psalm 26, I think, sound very much, if you think about it, like the tax collector in that parable in Luke 18. What did that tax collector pray? Lord, be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And David knew that prayer would be answered. That's why David could say in the, in the final verse of our psalm, verse 12, when he says, My foot stands on what? Level ground. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly I will bless the Lord. You know, trust in the Lord and his steadfast love in Jesus Christ. Walk in his truth because of that. And your feet will be on level ground when the day of trouble comes. When you're accused of things you have not done, when you're accused of something uh, because of the suffering or affliction going on in your lives, your conscience can be at rest because you can say that you can say that you're trusting in the grace of God in Jesus Christ and you have walked by God's grace and the work of his spirit because of that in the truth of the Lord. Then you too will be able to bless the Lord in the midst of the great assembly and praise him for what he has done for you. Let's, let's pray. Our great God and Savior, Father, Son, and Spirit, we give you praise. Uh, we don't have an altar here, but we give you praise. We, we speak aloud of the things uh, that you have done, of the good things, the great things that you have done for us and for our salvation. We thank you that, that we can come to you when things get rough, when affliction or suffering or even persecution comes our way, when we are accused wrongly, of wickedness, uh, we can come to you and plead our case as David did here, not because we are righteous in ourselves, because we are anything but. We are only righteous in your Son and his righteousness that's imputed to us by faith in him. And we thank you and praise you for that. We thank you that you judge us uh, at the bar of, of your judgment, ultimately based upon whether we are in Christ or not. And if we are in Christ, 
Uh, no one can condemn. No one can accuse and condemn because Christ is the one who justifies us. And we also thank you that you sanctify everyone that you receive as well, that you will lead us in your truth, in righteousness for your name's sake as our good shepherd. And we ask that you would give us grace to commit ourselves because of your grace to walk in our integrity, to walk in your truth more and more, that we might might glorify you in how we live and that we might have peace of conscience when the storms of life come by your grace. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen.